This is a show about individual experience and personal identity. There may be times when folks use identifying words or phrases that don't feel right to you. That's part of what we're exploring here. Please listen with an open heart, and as always, I welcome your polite, engaged feedback, and I encourage you to continue the conversation in your own life and with your own community. Welcome to Query. Hey, Queeros, Cammie here. Incredible, incredible news today on the show. Oh, I just realized I didn't use my microphone the entire time. I just recorded some of my stupid AirPods. Jordan! I fucked up. Oh, no. Well, look, if this doesn't sound as good as things usually sound, I don't want you to stop your letter writing campaigns to Jordan because it's not Jordan's fault. It's my fault. They mailed me a microphone to my house. They taught me how to use it. And I didn't use it today. And to talk to John Lovett, which is like, like the, he's like a podcasting royalty. So anyway, one person on this call right now is an idiot, and it's me. Um, anyway, today on the show, John Lovett from Pod Save America, from Love It or Leave It. Super prolific and interesting dude. I love this chat, and what a smarty. What a true smarty pants. Hey, I also want to shout out our Hey Queeros Patreon patrons. Now, this like means the world to me because... These folks, first of all, many of them come to the Hey Queeros meetup, which is one of our perks. Um, and I really feel like I have gotten to know these folks, and I so appreciate all of their support. If you want to help this show continue to get made, you just head over to patreon.com slash You make a little donation, and you know what? Honestly, it helps a fucking ton. I actually make the same amount from Patreon that I make from ads. And honest, and another thing I'll say, it's like that, not that much. Like, it's like not that much money. But it's enough that allows me to pay Sierra to be a producer on the show. It allows me to pay myself a little bit of money, which I really appreciate. Um, and then to keep making the show. So hey, for everybody that supports the show, and that's Beck, Jennifer Hunt, Chantel McClelland, Ethan Peterson, Paula Vavadowski, Levon Suwake, Brittany Carlson, Rachel McIntyre, Stacey M., Tanya Josek, Aaron Altacruz, Kevin Fry, Chloe Vicker, Peg Gardner, Francine Belbina, Hannah Booth, Bobby Dahmer, Audrey Jamie, Brenda Esposito, Danny Elkhorn, Liesel Jensen, Fiona Ding, Lawrence Snodgrass, Mara Barra, Amy A., Catherine Michaels, Gemma Douglas, and Jen Graf Perkins. I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. Thank you so much, my friends. I've been feeling wrong, but I'm still holding on, darling. I know, I know, I know it's careless. I always have folks start by introducing themselves. Would you introduce yourself? Sure. I'm John. Nice to see you. <laughs> You nailed it. It is nice to see you. I haven't seen you in a few years. I know. I know. It's been a long time. It's been a long yeah. time. It has Do you been want more time. detail? Like, I mean, that's what I would do if we met at like an event, you know, like is there a, a party or um, okay, yeah. on the so street. So thank you for the party introduction. I felt it made me feel social. You know what mm-hmm. I mean? In a time when that's so few and far between. It did it would be feel a, like a real. It would be like this, actually. Um, hey, I'm John. Actually, we've met before. Don't. <laughs> no, it's fine. It, and, I, and, I, and what I would say is. Oh my God. No, I totally, I mm-hmm. totally know we've met. Mm-hmm. Did you think I didn't know we've, oh my God. It I doesn't bother you. me. 
I remember everything about it. It's fine. Uh, wow. I mean, this is, I'd make it worse is what I'm saying. Yeah. And I'm digging, you know, I'm not letting you out of it. <laughs> so, um, you Do you get, find yeah, that when you meet people that you're um, just so focused on your side of it that you don't take the time to learn the name of the person you're talking to? That's how I keep it going. I just get super direct. Right. Well, I mean, one thing I'll say is that, and I know that this is probably true for you now. Um, you know, I've been doing, I've been doing live performance for actually 20 years this year. Wow. And the number of people that I have met I think compared to like most humans or what the human brain would, would like for us to meet. It's like, I've just met so many people that sometimes I can't uh, recall why I know somebody and it could be nothing. Like it could, like it could just be like nothing at all. Like it could be from some sort of random, or it could be that like we had a very important and heart to heart conversation. And that's, how do you, embarrassing sure but how it does do you, happen it does happen how do you feel about the so good to see you from like the many people go to the so good to see you because you know it what? Is i like that actually i i do say good to see you yeah mm-hmm. um totally and also then sometimes uh i don't know i'm just thinking about this with especially with like an audience members sometimes i really do remember what people are talking about like They'll be like, I came to this thing and we had this conversation and I really do remember it. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is also wild. How That's the best poll. That's the best poll. Like, any how is that. your leg? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> how, have I, how have I done that? What, what did I lose in my own... What did I lose in terms of like art or language building mm-hmm. skills that was then replaced by that? But yes, you are, John. Um, we first met uh, when I was doing your, when I was doing Pod Save America, um, or no, Love It or Leave It. We did, you were on the, you were on, you've been was on it love our or live leave shows. It? Yes. Okay. Yes. Yes. You're right. That's what it was. Yes. I was on Love It or Leave It, a live show. Yes. Um, but I feel like we've met a couple times anyway. Yeah. What? For sure. Yeah. But you have been, I feel like when we were first, I can't remember if you had done the HBO stuff. I don't think you had when we met. And I think that, you know, something I just want to start by asking you about is for, for somebody in podcasting, I think you've had an unusual trajectory in that you like went podcast to, to television, which is Mm -hmm. very few shows, especially for the amount of podcasts that there are, have actually done that. It's a very rare thing. Um, did you, how, how was that for you? How was that transition? So, um, you know, we started with Pods of America and then we added a few other shows and we built out this network and I think we were very gratified and surprised by the reception, both in terms of just, it is great that a lot of people listen to it, but it meant a lot that in the run up to 2018, more and more people were kind of signing up through Votes Save America and really engaging and being part of the community, because I think that was like the ultimate goal of what we were trying to do. And that led to uh, a series of HBO specials in the run up to the midterms. And it was very exciting and very nerve wracking. And um, it was uh, 
you know, we were I'm very proud of them. It was great. But like we were building this company. We were hosts, host of our other podcasts that we were still doing. Uh, we were now also going to be on TV for the first time together. By the way, we're also doing events to try to turn out the vote in 2018. We're traveling yeah. on the road. It was just like it was right. a very um, it was a very uh, it was it was it was amazing, but it was also really stressful. Like I'd never been in that kind of a place before. And like, right. for me, like this is a small issue in the grand scheme of things, but like, so are all issues in the grand scheme of things. But like for me in that period of time, like it's like, I was very comfortable being a podcast host and now my face is going to be on television. Yeah. Like, it's a totally different thing. Like yes. television, my face. Right. And it was so, and like, I put so much of my insecurity into that. And like, there have been so many, um, over the years, there's just been so many like, like little comments that you see, even if you're trying not to see them that are like, yes. you know, John and Tommy are so handsome and love it so funny. And it's like, you know, every, every musician oh, wants man. to be a comedian, every comedian, comedian wants to be a musician, you know? And like, there's so like, all that stuff is layered onto it. And, and, you know, the thing about podcasting that makes it I think that speaks to why it has become successful now, uh, why people build such an intimate relationship with the people whose shows they listen to. You don't accidentally listen to a podcast. You don't stumble across it. It's a choice you make. And it's a choice not only what you listen to, but when you listen to it. At the exact moment you want to listen to a podcast and the exact podcast you want to listen to, you click play. Television is not like that. Television you're just, you know, I think that like, I think like podcasting gets this kind of um, just a nicer fan group of people, nicer group of listeners, a little less caustic because like, you know, <laughs> there's no right wingers flipping through their television and stumbling across Pod Save America. You know, it's not it's not in front of you unless you've chosen it. And TV is different. TV is something that is just sort of, it's broader. It reaches more people. It comes across, yeah. comes comes in front of them accidentally. And so you just reach all these people in a way you hadn't before. Right. I mean, yeah, that makes so much sense. I even, that's calling to mind the moment. I mean, this is such a big thing that happened to you. Obviously, also, you were participating in it. You were making the work. But I just think about, like, the timing of when your podcast was hitting um, and then your podcasts were hitting. And it was like a pre the daily world when there wasn't necessarily a old media legitimized source um, for conversation in the podcasting space. Um, but I think we were ready for that or we were about to be ready for that. You, you, probably helped make us ready for that, you know, where it had been a lot of like comics interviewing each other. And then like just the like slight serial, you know, effect where new people were listening to it. And it wasn't just like in group conversation with jokers. I just think, you know, your show is really seminal in that shift because you had a little bit of that stuff. So it could like bridge, but, you know, the reason I'm saying something like that is I don't know that I've I don't know that I have seen T-shirts for a podcast, the amount that I've seen a T-shirts for your podcast. Even now, I still I travel a lot. I see them around. Um, um, and it's well, yeah. it's like a I, anyway, I guess I want to just see if you could speak to 
if that makes sense to you, what I'm describing, if that was the experience that you had, this sort of bridging moment and, and what that was like to be such a you know huge part of that, to be doing that thing or changing a medium. That's very nice. I would, I mean, I hadn't, wouldn't think of it like that or express it like that. I don't think I would have, I don't think I would have expressed it like that or thought of it that way. I think a couple things were happening at the same time. I think people were checking out podcasts. I think Serial set something off and there were a bunch of different explorations of what a podcast could be at the same time. I think we were lucky to be a part of that. At the same time, there was this shock uh, about Trump winning and what it meant and how we were going to process it. And then at the same time, I think there has been, continues to be this built up frustration with mainstream news that's actually not ideological. It's more about how it treats the news consumer, that there was so much there is so much coverage that it that treats the reader, the viewer, the listener, not as a citizen, but as some kind of an alien observer, along oh, with the media that is sort of watching planet Earth and its events unfold. And it says, "Ooh, look, hmm. look what the Americans are doing today. Look what these rural voters are doing. Look what these urban voters are doing. Look what these rich people are doing. And there's no part of that that's like, hey, you're not an alien. You're in it. This is not news this is not news that's supposed to, this is supposed to be news for you to help you as an as not just an observer, but an active, engaged citizen make decisions. And there was also, uh, especially in the run up to 2016, a kind of collective failure to put what was happening in the country in context uh, in a way that was simple and plain and serious without being self-serious. And I think we were feeling that as news consumers ourselves, we were having these conversations ourselves and it, with Keeping It 1600 in the run up to the election and then with Pod Save America uh, after the election, we basically just say, hey, like, here's how the news is covering Trump right now. Here's all these disparate pieces of the story that are hard to follow. How do you think it think it through in a way that maybe doesn't always not exactly to let you um calm down completely, but get you out of the panic zone, right? Like, hey, like the news is really frightening, alarming, uh, enraging. You don't exactly know how to think about it or what to do with it. Here's a place where we kind of process a bunch of stuff twice a week to give you a sense of like what's important, what's not, how to think about it for yourself, if that's helpful so that you can kind of process it in a way that's a little less noisy. And then also, by the way, like here's what you can go do right now. You can go to like Vote Save America and there's going to be a couple steps that you can take to put some of your agita, to put some of your angst to good purpose rather than just like scrolling and refreshing and hoping it's going to end far sooner than it's going to end. Yeah. You know, it's funny. As I, I almost feel like to an extent and the, the, your style, super different, but I almost feel like something you're describing like from my own childhood that I'm thinking of as you're talking is like, how the local news used to be when local news anchors were like revered as community members. And then they would go to man on the street interviews, you know, with folks who were also community members and how different that feels than like a CNN or MSNBC news cycle, which is like so, um, such a big umbrella. And then also sometimes just so repetitive that, you know, that personal, I think in some ways, although it was very different than, again, like your, you know, personality and what you're bringing, I think in some ways that that is something that we've had in the past and that we really lost as, 
like the mega news corporation and the 24 news cycle, hour news cycle um, took over. Yeah, you I mean, know, I that that's... like person you have a connection with that you trust I... who lives in your community. Do you, I, I don't know. I remember when I was a kid, there were these ads for Roz. Uh, that's Roz. Anybody from like ABC New York is going to remember the commercials just sort of like, is that Roz? That's Roz. <laughs> and Roz was on the street being our local news anchor. Yeah. Roz was cool. Yeah, exa- that's what, exactly what I'm talking about. Th- that I just think, oh, right. We did once upon a time sort of have, there was a person in Chicago where I grew up called Joan Esposito, who was like, you know, very trusted on air news. <laughs> I just felt so honored. Couldn't believe that her last name was also Esposito. What a, what a dream. What a dream. Exactly. What a connection. So I want to ask you then how, and when you were talking about this transition to television, you know, and also with your podcast, uh, hitting so hard, you know, did you, did you think that you would be somebody who would be this front facing in your life? Did you think you would be looked at and known to the degree that you are? I don't, I don't know that I am to the degree that I am, that you're suggesting. (laughs) No, I, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, yeah, I understand what you're saying. (laughs) Right. (laughs) To the degree that you're saying no, to the degree that I am, maybe, which is less than the degree that you're suggesting. Uh, I would say like the, the cool thing that about like, I don't know. I'm just generally like uncomfortable with this aspect of it. I mean, I like the the re- the reality of the starting of like Pod Save America, Crooked Media was it really was from a like a an authentic place of hey, I think there's room for the kind of conversation we've been having on this other show, especially now. And so many of our friends and so many of members of our family were like texting us like, "Hey, what do we what do we do now? Like we're all so miserable." And uh, and I remember, um, uh, I called the night of the election. I called my partner Ronan. He happened to have not been in LA that night. And I think he was, he was with his mother, uh, who is, uh, Mia Farrow, who is a, an actress. And, um, uh, I was saying like, I was so overcome and I was like, I don't, I feel like I want to get back into politics in some fashion. Like that very night, I was like, I don't know how we move forward right now, but I really feel like I'm not going to, I don't know how I'm going to like write a pilot, right? I don't know how to do any of that right now. Like I feel so overwhelmed. Like there's got to be some way we can like redouble what we're doing. And, and, uh, with, um, these podcasts and, you know, John and Tommy, we were having that conversation they were feeling the same way. And I remember Mia said something along the lines, she made some reference to some, uh, Eastern European political leader. And she just went, you know, he was a failed screenwriter first too. (laughs) <laughs> and, I, and I was like, first of all, I'm not ready to say I'm not ready to I'm doing OK out here. I'm getting stabbed all over the place. Let's not say the failed word. That's unfair. But uh, like, I think she was really speaking to like, hey, maybe it is time to like figure out what to do in politics. And what John and Tommy and I talked about with Crooked was like, based on what happened in 2016, so much of our politics has moved to media like media is really what has been driving a lot of the brokenness in our politics, whether it's like right-wing propaganda or kind of punditry in general that treats politics like a game. Like that was the place we thought we could like try to have an impact and where we're the most frustrated. 
that the response is what the response has been was like genuinely surprising and also like surprising implies we we expected some other outcome i don't know that we were thinking that way like we were just like let's try this right now like i i think it's hard i mean it's hard i try to it's hard to put ourselves back in the kind of like november december january february that 2016 to 27 turnover mindset like we were in a dark place i mean we still are to this day but like the the uncertainty of what was about to unfold um I really don't think we were thinking that far ahead. Yeah, I hear you. Where were you election night? We were in LA. We were doing a live stream for our uh, for Keeping It 1600 with The Ringer. So we like watched a lot of the election unfold in real time on screen. And yeah. I remember I uh, <laughs> like there was this moment where I I was talking to a friend on the phone and at the po- at that point we thought we were still going to win Pennsylvania. And so we didn't realize how much of it was slipping away already, but we were realizing based on where the numbers were that we had to win Michigan and it wasn't looking sure. It wasn't even looking probable. And I remember that moment. I was like, Oh my God, this is really happening. This is really happening. And then I looked to my right, and there were a group of background actors online for some network procedural at the studio waiting for their box lunch, like at, in the evening. And I just remember looking at all those people in line waiting for their sandwiches and just being like, am I from the future? Do you people not know what's about to happen? Yeah. So, yeah, we were in L.A. I was that was on I was on the we were on the Sunset Gower a lot doing oh, these sure. occasional live streams. You know, Sunset Gower, you know, all I was things. actually just down the street. I was at wow. ECB Franklin. Hollywood, on stage you know what's your dream you know yeah <laughs> we truly were that's like a half mile from each other mm-hmm, we were a half mm-hmm. mile from each other um mm-hmm. having separate nightmares um because yeah i would i i had a tuesday night weekly show at the time and i was so <laughs> excited to be on stage and then to have the producer break in oh, and no. call the states I just and that. oh my god and also it wasn't even like it wasn't an election special. It was just like a stand-up show. So there were just comics booked who were like, I mean, of course, everybody knew what day it was, but I just mean, nobody, nobody was like dressed in red, white, and blue. Nobody like brought their like a game of like political jokes. It was like a bunch of people that kind of like thought they were going to talk about like pizza or like, you know, blowjobs or like whatever they were going to talk about. And then it was just harrowing. (laughs) I just love the idea of like an improv, an improv show that night. And, and somebody's out there like, um, uh, somebody, uh, somebody shout out a restaurant and somebody shout out a fascist takeover. Uh, give me a, give me a, give me a fascist dictator, uh, and give me a job. Give me a job that I can I use. <laughs> Actually, I was at like, uh, I ran into somebody again, who I didn't remember meeting. So sorry to this person. If for some reason they ever hear this, but I had no memory of who this person was. And we were like, uh, at, at a pool, uh, for one of my friend's birthdays. And this person was like, hey, Cameron, great to see you. I haven't seen you in a long time since that night. And I was just like, what the fuck are you talking about? And he was like, yeah, because you remember I had the show after yours on election night. And his show was a one man show of characters, (laughs) (laughs) like, (laughs) which actually is I can't think of a worse. I'm just like a bunch of wigs just coming out to do like pre-planned written sketch work it just 
impossible. I'm still stuck on the improv show, and I just have to get this out, which is, I heard Ceausescu and I heard Tapas. That's all I wanted to say. I just had to say those two things. Yeah, look, I don't. We don't have to live in this time anymore. It's a terrible time, but I do think it was really funny that for a couple of weeks after the election, um, uh, people, I would like go to a friend's house and they'd be like, "Hey, do you want champagne?" And like this strange phenomenon of like friends offering champagne like all the time. And I realized it was like. They all had bought a couple bottles of champagne oh for their God. election night parties. Oh my God. And so the city had like all this, oh this, uh, sh- this champagne that just had to go ready to move. Like, no, I don't oh want God. champagne. We're in a crisis. Oh, God. I actually, you know what? I can, this is also, first of all, that is amazing. <laughs> um, I flew to Mexico the next morning to perform at a club med that had been rented by like a lesbian vacation company. That Mm -hmm. serves mostly people in their 50s, 60s, and 70s. And so I when I took the like, you know, they pick me up at the airport or whatever, and it's like I was pulled in and there are just dangling banners and like champagne glass pyramids. Just it's just it was the while you know it was like the tumbleweed going through the boomtown party that never was it was one of the saddest things i've ever seen in my life and there were like 2000 lesbians there 2000 older lesbians who were all like fucking pissed in their shorts and then i had to ready talk to fight to them about, just 2000 yeah, exactly. lesbians at a club met just ready to fucking throw <laughs> so down so mad yeah oh god <laughs> What a time. What a time. It was a time, yeah. Hmm. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. (laughs) Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! You and Ronan mm-hmm. have some visibility as a couple yeah. um, because of who you both are. And I wonder what that's like for you, you know, how you navigate that. Um, you know, it's uh, at first we were very, very private about it. And I think for him, you know, he grew up being defined by his family by being defined and asked about the choices of family members and that no matter what he did, that would loom really large. And I think Mm -hmm. that made him extremely correctly concerned about any kind of like public relationship, because ultimately that's not about the work that you're doing. It's, It's about something else. And 
I think he still feels that way. And I think I've come to understand why it's like a really good instinct to keep focused on like the actual work you're doing and not some of the kind of more personal stuff. I also think that like he's, you know, like he's had this obviously extraordinary run as a journalist. And I think it is hard to outrun a famous story when, you know, you're famous from the time you're a kid because of your parents. But I would say being a incredibly um, significant contributor to like journalism over a period of several years again and again uh, is a great way to do that. And I think that took incredible. It is incredible that he was able to like do what he did on its own. But but I do think it kind of like established like, hey, like this is my work. This is what I do far. It's completely separate from where I come from, like the, 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 the part of my story that is this terrible scandal when I was a child because of these horrible actions by, uh, my father. Um, but I think we're like with us, like over time, it's just sort of, we, like he, he would come on love it or leave it. People really liked that. We had fun doing that. So there was never really a decision. It was more like, we just got a little bit more relaxed about it and a little bit more open about it. And I think that that's fine. Like, I think that that's a kind of good, a good balance on the whole. Yeah, that sounds healthy. <laughs> I don't know. I it's. I, I think it's, a, I mean, go ahead. What were you saying? <laughs> no, no, no. I like, I'm, I, it's, uh, I don't think about how I think about it very much, you know, Does that makes sense. Sure. I mean, you know, I, it's lovely that it, it sounds like it's sort of evolved naturally and that is lovely and then there's another version where like it's talked to death so it, it could be either thing always with anything like that um there's a there's this funny aspect of it though because like he is he is like really become very well known and like in a way that's like you know i i see it happening and it's good and it's, and it speaks to the work that he's done and it is based in the work and i think that that is good but there have been a couple of moments where like like there were things like some Somebody took a picture of Ronan and I was in the picture. And so it always it was just said Ronan Farrow with John Lovett. And it's always the photo is of him and I'm of no consequence. And so like what my face is doing, nobody has considered it in the choosing of the photo. No one's like, let's get a good picture of both of them. And so like it's like there are these photos where he's like looks so handsome, so symmetrical. His hair looks good. And then it's like. Uh, it looks like he's meeting with his lawyer who's upset and also not <laughs> dressed correctly for work. It's like, what? Totally. <laughs> like this sort of like scowling, smaller person. Anyway, uh, but that's my own journey. That's my own insecurity that I'm bringing, bringing to this, you know? Well, I think that's that sounds like a really reasonable insecurity to have. Yeah, when folks are taking pictures. I mean, I, I think um, I'm, you know, I'm currently, I, um, I'm married and Uh-oh. it's really recent. Um, I didn't know that. I didn't know you were married. Yeah, I am. Um, and my partner, Katie, um, because since I last seen you, I have been divorced. And then I have been That remarried. one I knew. Yeah. I knew about the divorce. Fun divorce. Not, not, not a divorce. Not fun. Uh, then I'm remarried. Um, and I just say all this to say she's a person who uh, had like no experience with, she, she like works in books. So she has been around a lot of people that have a lot of visibility, but nobody's ever been taking a picture of her. And 
it was really a wild experience to go on a red carpet with her for the first time because I felt like I had to like give her a little coaching so that she wasn't going to be like totally out to sea. Um, I still won't do it by the way. I walk behind them. I just push him forward. And I walk behind them. That's my, that's my strategy. <laughs> I really do. Like, see, I mean, the other side. this is not my life. This is not that's my life. So, that's so funny. Yeah. Cause I, I feel like it's, it's, it's a very odd thing, I guess is what I'm trying to say. It's all a very odd thing that anybody would ever want to call anybody's name is a very odd thing. Um, and certainly if you're the, if you're at somebody else, if you're at somebody else's event, as opposed to when Ronan's at your look, events. First of all, I'm always at his events. All right. I'm on a plus. <laughs> look, listen, I don't want to look. I was a couple of podcasts. All right. I'm always, okay. I'm, my life is a plus one world tour. I am there. <laughs> he can, he can hand me things to hold. I will put them in my pockets and then he can do what he needs to do. And I am here. That is my, that is my existence. It's, it's RuPaul's Drag Race or I'm going to something that he was invited to. That's the life. That's the life that I lead. And it's a life that I like. Like it. Yeah. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's amazing. I I also... I don't totally know what you were doing before this. Were you an actual... Were you a screenwriter? So, I was a... So, I was a speechwriter for Hillary Clinton. That then, I knew. Then I was a speechwriter for President Barack Obama. Then, and that I knew. Then I left. And so I had this idea that I was going to do some kind of stand up, some kind of comedy writing. I didn't totally know. And when I came out to L.A., because I had this experience writing jokes for President Obama, I had an opportunity to write just a pilot, you know, to see where it would go. And I thought that, like, that was just going to be like a way to make some money so that I could start living in L.A. and do stand up and try things and figure out what I wanted to do with my life. But that pilot became a show really quickly. It became 1600 Pen which I wrote with Josh Gad and Jason Weiner and it became an NBC sitcom. And I had like, I downloaded final draft to write this thing. Like I had no experience. I was completely unmoored. I was learning as I went. I learned a lot. It was an incredible experience, a great experience. I learned a lot from a lot of great writers, but basically I hit the ground running, did that. But, but then that obviously came to, um, we we did one perfect season and that was it. Uh, we left. That's how we wanted it. From the beginning, when you set out to make a network sitcom, you want to make 13. Absolutely. That's the perfect number. You and want a mid-season you, order. You say, four, you say no, no, no. I told the story I came here to tell. Mm-hmm. All right. When, when it comes to a network family sitcom, the yep. ideal number is 13. You want to start airing them in January. You want totally. to be done by May. And then you yep. want to move on. And so by the after... Way, <laughs> My so-called life, one season. That's and I and like, I think of sixteen hundred pen uh, the, as the my my so-called, my so-called life. life of zany White House family comedies. And, uh, and in a should. lot of ways, in a lot of ways, it was a lot like that. Very different tone, subject matter, writing style, directing style, uh, and genre. Uh, but some of the same parent-child conflict. If sure, we think of say the president as a parent and and he was Mm -hmm. yeah uh but um so then that ends and really that was like the first time in my adult life i hadn't been like like on this sort of race this sort of like ambitious race like i was like i graduated from college and like i i get try to get into politics i get the speech writing job i get another speech writing job i leave that i instantly have this incredible opportunity 
all of which for which all of which I was very very I felt fortunate to do it. But then all of a sudden that's canceled. Now it's like, okay, I live in L.A. I got three great friends, <laughs> Max. I have really never not been distracted from my own existential hopes and dreads by work before. You know what I should probably do? I should probably order takeout and not leave this apartment for about six months. <laughs> That's probably the best thing. Totally. Probably should do that as quickly as possible. Um, yeah. But then, then I um I wrote uh, uh, another couple of pilots. I worked on the newsroom, the Aaron Sorkin show. I sold. I, I was working on this drama that I, I had this idea for a drama, actually about a presidential election that falls apart into chaos. Uh, that I was working on that was going to be a, a show. Um, but I was like a little bit adrift. Like I, in hindsight, I was like, wasn't really motivated or sure what I wanted to do. That's where I, that's where I was in the run up to 2016 when we started doing Keeping It 1600. Actually, John, Tommy and I had been pitching this show. Dan and John had started this podcast. We kind of smushed them together. That became Keeping It 1600 uh, with John and Tommy, with, with, with uh, uh, Tommy and I being added to it. And we kind of did that through the election. And after the election, I didn't know what I was going to do. I'd probably be on a completely uncontroversial Roseanne reboot. That's sort of where I think I would have ended up just working on that. Really think that that's like really the other timeline. Because um, <laughs> I remember talking to somebody about it before the election. Like, uh, if I may do this Roseanne reboot, what do you think? It's like, all right, I'll do that. Sure. And then obviously the election happened. So I was in the I was in this place where I think. I thought I wanted to be done with politics. And then I realized, like, actually, I kind of am missing this part of myself, like this pull of comedy, this pull of politics. They were both there. And it really came together with Ponte America and then with Love It or Leave It. So I am fortunate in that from this terrible moment, we started this company where I could really kind of use both sides of what I cared about. I mean, that makes perfect sense. And I'm sure you get this question all the time, but do you have do you have political aspirations for yourself? Oh, um, hmm. I don't think it's a good idea that I run for office. I don't (laughs) (laughs) like I don't. I think that like there's a little part of me that has the same like kind of childlike idea of running for office that I think all little overachiever. Uh, gay people pleasing ambitious yeah. types have yeah. Uh, yeah. that's in there um but like if i actually think about it really it's like let me translate that into the actual world and really like i feel very fortunate that i get to make these shows in which i get to talk about politics i get to meet people i get to be on stage and i get to do it without any of the compromises that would come along with my, uh, I would say, um, uh, specific personality being uh, put to the test of uh, trying to not tell the truth to a bunch of people about why right. they're annoying the fuck out of me for not voting the right way. You know, I don't know. I don't think that I'm not. That's not for me. I don't think that's for me. When you were during all that time, the um, speechwriter time and the early days in the entertainment industry time were were you always out yes yes i was um i 
yes, I've been out since. Yes, I don't. I don't. Like I think I came out very early in college, or even before I came out, like the very end of high school, and I never. I mean, I'm sure there are people who didn't know because I didn't like you know, you're always coming out in some way, but like, mm-hmm. yeah, I was I was out. I'm not very good at um. Not making a joke about being gay all the time, <laughs> so it's like it's gonna come up. I actually have no idea how that would affect you, or if there would be any effect in that world in the like working for different campaigns or different like i have no i don't know if that would i have I have no concept of whether or not that's like a chill thing being um out. well it always well i mean i think it was but uh for me it was but uh, i do remember when i was like looking back so much of how i think about my like early speech writing years i'm like really struck by the kind of like immaturity and buffoonery born of insecurity that I brought to virtually every aspect of what I did. You know, like you kind of look Very back, relatable. At you, you look relatable. back at yourself in your early twenties and you're like, just chill out. Just do what you just do your job. Don't try too hard. You don't need to make such a show of yourself. You know, there's all of that. And like, you know, th- those are like the little things you think about though. Like the, everybody's got a list and they store it right in the core of their abdomen of those moments from their 20s when they were like a little buffoonish, you know? (laughs) Everyone has this list. And the cool thing about it is every person has that list and no one remembers anyone else's list. Oh, So we're all walking around. It's mostly true, though, you know, people remember a couple of them. Deep down, (laughs) you know? Like, you like to believe they're all forgotten, but a couple of them are in somebody else's list of the times others were buffoons in their presence. Regardless, putting those aside, like, I remember... And I wouldn't do this the same way today, but I remember we like this was at a time when Democrats were it was about civil union like this. You know, this was 20, 2005, 2006, 2007. And like there was this question around gay marriage versus civil unions. And. And I don't remember the exact context of the speech, I could figure it out if I went back and looked, but basically I was working on some. I think there was some question at the time as to whether or not Hillary Clinton would come out in favor of gay marriage or if she was just going to be in favor of just at the time. I mean, I remember watching from like 2005 to 2008 how civil unions went from being an applause line for a Democrat to yes. being nothing. Uh, oh, totally. Silence. Absolutely. Yeah. And so at some point during that time, she was saying she wasn't for marriage equality. She was for equal rights through civil unions. And I, I was working on the speech and I had this feeling like, you know, I just want to tell her that, like, I'm a gay person working on this because we never had that conversation. And it turns out that a few weeks earlier, someone had mentioned to her that I was gay. And so when I went in to give her the, the remarks for some other event, I was like, and by the way, like, I know we've been going back and forth on this speech for some some events. And like, I've never told you, but I'm gay. And I just want you to know that, like, um, you know, as we having these conversations, I can't remember exactly what I, f- I don't think I said anything articulate. I probably walked in there and went and said, here's uh, gay. Here you go. Gotta go. Bye. Gay. I don't know what I said, but she said something so funny, which she goes, she went, oh, Jonathan, I knew months ago, which was great, which was great. How did you feel writing that stuff? First of all, that's an amazing story. And also... Yeah. I mean, what I was doing at that time was I was, um, 
I felt like I was like putting my body on the line. I mean, it, I mean, it, in a in a way that it is stand up comedy. But I just I was very early in my career. People were shouting at my face. You know, like it wasn't like a things were not like comfortable. Nobody was like happy I was <laughs> there. Um, and I just I just remember that time was so contentious and so wild. And yes also some of it felt like really hopeful beyond my wildest dreams in a way that's now like humiliating to think about like that i was like so excited and giving applause breaks at things like civil unions or like oh my god they like they like dropped a vague reference to like ellen or whatever it's like in this like i'm, I'm so seen and it's never gonna get better than this but i have no yeah. idea what it'd be like to write that you know or to be closer to that yeah, it's interesting, right? Because it's hard to put ourselves, I think, in that mindset of how these sort of these incremental victories just felt like victories at the time. But that's how all yeah. the incremental victories feel. I think one thing that like it took like I went sh I was so young when I went into politics and I was such a consumer of political news and not enough outside of it that. So that's one aspect. And then another piece of it was that as a speechwriter, I do think that like. You know, one question I would get all the time is, is when you're a speechwriter, what do you do when you don't agree with the speeches that you're working on? Right. And the real answer um, for me was like, that's not the job. Like, my job isn't to write a speech about what I think. My job is to write a speech that helps another person express what they think. And their job is to know what to say. Their job is to take the position through a bunch of other means. And if I'm doing my job, I'm faithfully representing how that person would work on this speech if they had the time. Because I never worked for like a George W. Bush or some other kind of brain dead uh, 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 politician who couldn't do their own work. Right. Like Hillary Clinton, Barack Obama, give them a laptop. They could write a speech. And, and so I viewed my job as like my job is to give them what they need. Their job is to know the rest. And if we're both doing our jobs, it'll be a good speech. And so I really feel like I internalized that where like my job was really to like find the best way to express whatever the positions were. And for the most part, as a, you know, I was a, I'm a, you know, a liberal Democrat and like, I think probably have always been to the left of the people I worked for, but you feel proud that you're pushing for the side that's trying to make progress. And, and you, for the most part, understand the goals and compromises that go into their agenda and proposals and views. And so that is really how I felt about it at the time, stepping outside of it, right? Like, I do think that it was very helpful to me as just a person to, like, get out of politics for a couple of years and be on the outside so that you can kind of question not the positions so much as the assumptions that lead to those positions, specifically around what's politically tenable, what's not, what is too ambitious, what's not what people will what people will embrace what they won't right and so that's really sort of what i've taken like at that time like i was in it you know my job right. was to do this and i'm going to do this well like that's the kind of that's how i felt when i was i think you know look i'm was 23 24 25 when i'm working on this it's like one of my first <laughs> real jobs i am surrounded by i'm over i am in over my head, I am overwhelmed, I am insecure, I'm learning as I go. Uh, 
And, you know, that that's sort of where you're at. Like, I think when you're kind of grinding out a bunch of speeches every single day. Wow. I mean, even though I do not have any of that experience um, directly, I, I really relate to that, actually. You know, I think maybe some people that when they're very young are having the experience of like never compromising for anything. I think for me, I was really trying to have a job um, and I really was, yeah, I was trying to find out what would be palatable, you know, and like even to say that word is so demeaning to myself, but I think that that's really where I was at at the time in terms of um, just all these same things that you're talking about. And it, it is, I don't know, I just really relate to what you're talking about from that age and, and that time frame, and it's, then just getting a little bit of distance from it and feeling a little sad for my younger self in my case. And also like, it's not, it's not like, um, it just is what it is. It happened how it happened, but, but some of that's tough, you know, to, yeah, I mean, to I not also, know things could be pushed further, I guess. Even if you're just doing your job, to not know, in, I, like I didn't know in my heart that things could be pushed further. Well, yeah, like stepping even outside, forget jobs, forget politics, like just stepping outside of it. Like, I think so many of those fights, like I think that there's something important about what the, f we were having a different kind of conversation about gender and sexual orientation and queerness now than we were having then mm -hmm. um the the debates then were really focused on giving gay people access to the institutions of like heteronormative life mm -hmm. and there were plenty of activists at the time who were saying we don't like You'd want to get married and join the military. You go for it. That's not, that's not the the gay liberation that I'm in the market for. I'm right. looking for something different. And I think like what's interesting is you can argue that the movement itself made progress to to kind of get to a place where it's more interested in that conversation. Or I think you can argue that we had to make some of those strides. We had to gain access to some of those institutions and choose to be a part of them. Or you can be outside of them because you're. You view, you view yourself as being too fucking queer to be part of these sort of mainstream uh, outlets. And I think that that's good. Like, I think it's good that they're all there for people. Um, and I don't think one is more is one of neither one of them is right or even more gay or queer than the other. Well, that's beautiful. And I know that people who listen to the show are going to really appreciate uh, that viewpoint. I think it's, I think it's really smart. I, Let's see, we don't have too much time left. And I'm and I'm also just curious, like what what is ahead for you in your mind? Like what would you want? Uh, you know, you've had such a an interesting set of things already happen um in your life and such an interesting set of things that you worked for um already in your life. And I don't know what somebody's like hopes and dreams would look like. You know, we are, so we started Crooked Media 
John Favreau, Tommy Vitor, and I, <clears throat> John Favreau, Tommy Vitor, and I started Crooked Media uh, in January of 2017. And I think now we have built a big podcast network, a big platform for activism and community. We are, we are adding shows all the time. We're bringing no voices. We really kind of, I think, created a space to try to like reach a bunch of, you know, a, uh, a far more diverse, both kind of intellectually uh, and culturally and sort of politically um, audience through what we do, through all these different hosts and all these different shows. And I think thinking about what we can do in this era when the kind of daily, the kind of daily cattle prod of Trump is gone, like the daily little jolts to the to the to the haunches <laughs> from a, from electricity he is a cattle that was, prod for yes. sure so <laughs> that that little zoop every morning that's gone but a lot of the same underlying threats are still there and and keeping people from being complacent while not sort of honoring the fact that people are people and no they're not going to be a hundred percent engaged it's not october 2020 all the time but like how can we keep people in the fight and kind of create more content with a progressive point of view that makes sure we're not letting our guard down, that we're keeping our eye on the various threats, whether they're, you know, policy-wise or electoral or to the bodily autonomy of human beings, uh, and without becoming exhausted and without becoming enervated, like, I think that is the challenge. And we're always thinking about ways to do that. And and I feel very proud of, like, like... <laughs> I'm here. Crooked Media is here. I'll be doing this. I got no I got no plans after this. Well, that's a big plan, actually. <laughs> and and to stay motivated and to stay on task in a time when I don't know. It's just like the post the post-Trump exhaustion mixed with the thing. I'm so glad you're I guess what I'm trying to say is I'm so fucking glad that you're doing this. <laughs> I <t> because <laughs> I because like a lot of people need to tap out for a second. Acknowledging, and it's really good to have people who know what the fuck they're talking about that want to stay engaged because it isn't always October 2020. And you know, it's like um, are you seen the show Squid Game on Netflix where they nope. Everybody and what am I doing wrong? What am I doing with my life? Listen, I've never even heard of that. We're all what? gonna be listen. We're all watching Squid. Kyle, are you watching Squid Game? He says he's not. We're all, all right. going to be watching Squid Game. Here's the thing. This is such a roundabout way at the end of the show. There's a night where they guard, where you got two people got to stay awake and keep guard while a couple other people sleep. That's all I was getting at. That's all go. I was getting at. We need some people to stand guard while a couple other people sleep uh -huh. so that when we all get up, we're not yep. dead. And the other thing I'll say is, there it is we're doing live shows again. We're doing live shows again. That's another thing we're doing. Hooray! So come check out some those. of our live shows. We're going to, we're doing live shows every Thursday outdoors in Hollywood. We're doing a big live show in New York at the Beacon on November 12th. Yeah, Friday, November 12th. And it's really fun to be kind of getting out of, getting out in front of audiences again. It's been so fun to have crowds coming out uh, when we haven't had that for two years because like so much of what we've been doing here is trying to like build community and like the touring and the live shows was such a great way to do that. I mean, you were at, one of our live shows at the improv. Yes. Um, and it's just so fun to be there with other people again and to get that feedback. 
you know, for example, I made a buy erasure joke on buy visibility day. And you know what? I heard about it. I heard about it. Do I regret it? No, because it wasn't directed at bisexual people. It's directed at straight girls cruising the internet for marginalization <laughs> clout, you know, because sometimes that happens. Sometimes it happens. They want the clout. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I've, I've... Are we not allowed to talk about? I'm, I believe in a thriving what? bisexual community and a couple of straight girls hunting for clout. What I hope for from our future, <laughs> from our shared future. From our shared future. Cis dudes mm-hmm. taking on mm-hmm. bisexuality for clout. Now that's when that we get there. the dream. That's the dream. That's why. We get there. That's why I'm that. I'm so excited for us. That's why straight girls threw the first brick at Stonewall. All right. They did. <laughs> when we get there. I can't. You know what? Also, this has nothing to do with anything, but just to say you're going to have so much fun in New York because I was just there to do some shows and I've done a couple other live shows. And, you know, New York is it just feels pretty safe there. Um, and so it was I'm excited about it. Enjoyable because Beacon it felt like. Can't wait. Yeah. And it felt like, OK, we can be inside of a theater here. Like this is the, the rules are very clear, very consistent. We can be inside. Like that's about that. That was the vibe. Yeah. How do you feel great. this episode went? How do you feel it went? I feel like it went great. Okay. Um, how do, how do you feel like it went? You want to edit? We go through edit every. I don't know, second or third, com- ch- chat every second or third mm-hmm. sentence and see and string I mean, it all I just as a guest, all I care about is that you feel like this is a good episode. You know, that's what I want. I just want to know that you feel good about well, it. Well, wow. I'll tell you what I think oh, happened. Wow. I think Long you were pause. smart. No, I think you were smart. No, charming, no, I feel terrible. And funny, you know, and I think that for <laughs> listeners, they're used to just getting one of those, you know, and this is really, this is me <laughs> shitting on all the other wonderful guests who've given their we, time yeah. over the years. Yeah, damn uh, right. John, before you go, I do have mm-hmm. one thing that we have to do, which is okay. you have to shout out a queero, which is a person, place or thing that made you feel that you could be who you are today. So like it could be a human, but it could also be like a movie. This or is, it could be like a this sandwich could be store. Easier. This could not be easy. All right. Well, let me, it, let is me the mo- it is the moment when Miss Piggy returns to the department store after having been rejected by Kermit the Frog. And Joan Rivers <laughs> cheers her up by putting makeup on. But they go too far and they get fired for putting on too much makeup. <laughs> that is it. Okay. Well, you know what? That's the first time that somebody said that. But there's still more episodes in the future. I bet it won't be the last. That's one of the, that's one of, that's, that's it. That's when I was like, that's, this was made for me. I said, I said when I was six years old, when did Muppets Take Manhattan come out? When you were six years old. And I don't know how old you are, but like, that's when it feels right. It feels right. Remember when they're doing the powder puffs? Remember? Do you remember what I'm talking about? I can't remember anything about Muppets Take Manhattan. Is that, what, is that, is Bert, is like, are, were you going to ask if Bert and Ernie are in it? No, honestly. Do you know what I almost just confused it with? Are you ready? I almost mm-hmm. just confused it with Follow That Bird. I'm not Don't doing know what well. that is. Oh, it's Don't like know a what Sesame that Street is. one. It's a Sesame Street movie where like Big Bird is hitchhiking. But this is not, this is not Muppets Take Manhattan. This is not no. what I'm, this is not what I'm not remembering. This is Kermit record. in a suit and tie. This is. When does he ride a bicycle? 
Kermit rides a bicycle. When? I can see. I don't know. I can see it happening in Manhattan, but I'm not it's sure. A, okay. That, that a, was remember, a big thing that they could move a, his legs like that. People are losing their mind. How did they do it? There's a purse snatching in that film. Oh, my God. Maybe I got to. Muppets take Manhattan. And you know what? You know what? That title delivers because they fucking did. Oh, yeah. They took it. Absolutely. I don't know if you've ever, have you ever gotten a chance to like work with or, or um, meet anybody that that's like a Muppeteer that like works with like the Henson school of, look, we, it's I had one scene with Fozzie. I had one, th- one scene with Fozzie and when the cameras were off, he's a fucking asshole. <laughs> Paul Nicest guy. Camera, camera turns on. Couldn't be sweeter. Cameras off. What a prick. <laughs> Paul of Tompkins. Fozzie held show. up his. I'm not even going to let you. Fozzie no, held okay. up his hand. He says, "What's wrong with this hand? There's no cigarette in it." Oh my god! <laughs> it was I've never seen anything like that? <laughs> so hostile. Sorry, you were saying. I was, I was just going to say that he used to have this show that was called "No, You Shut Up." It, it doesn't matter. Whatever. It was a it was a news show, but everybody was uh, like a Henson puppeteer, but there were no Muppets on the show. Anyway. <laughs> To work with actual who wants Henson Muppets? Puppet- who wants yeah? Who, you, who wants, you, who wants, who wants puppets from Jim Henson? <laughs> yeah, who wants Muppets when you could just have like the hot dog? But anyway, they were they, they were amazing. What I was going to say is the um, the transition to talking to normal humans to talking to the puppet. It's immediate. Those those people are so good at their job. They're so good at moving the face and the body in a way that feels that you're used to, uh, that there's not, there's not a part of you that's like trying to ignore the guy that's down below the puppet, like immediately. What if somewhere out there, there's a puppeteer who's like, one of the weirdest things that ever happened to me is Cameron, M- Cameron M- <laughs> Esposito was on this show and she acted like I didn't fucking exist. She talked to the puppet like it was real. It's crazy. No one has ever done that. It was the weirdest thing I've ever seen. It was so uncomfortable. Oh we all God. talk about it to this day. We talked about it at Jim Henson's funeral. That's how funny it was to us. That, number one, I hope so. I hope I was brought up <laughs> at, at that hallowed event. <laughs> maybe um, in maybe in future, you know, this is kind of an approach that you could take for red carpets. Like you're nah, the, just behind. think of yourself as the puppeteer. <laughs> waka waka, you know. Hey, it was lovely speaking with this you. This was great. I hope I see you real soon. Yeah, yeah. Um, it'd be great to see you. Yeah. Thanks for having me. 